In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Paul Jarvis about defining your own version of success and why you might not need to build a big business to achieve it. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 102. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Paul Jarvis. How's it going, Paul? Pretty good. It's a Canada connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, the reason I wanted to have you on the show, I've been a, a big fan of yours for years and I've followed your writing uh, for a long time. And uh, recently, you announced a, a book that you've been working on. I, I don't know when you started working on it, but basically the whole year probably. Uh, two years okay and uh, the book is called company of one and as far as i understand it it's about um, showing people sort of a different path to building a business that doesn't have to get huge and have tons of people involved and how to do that in a way where you can still sort of reach uh, your own goals and live a fantastic and fulfilling life so I thought that would be an awesome thing to to talk about because a lot of the people that listen to the show, um, you know, it's a show targeted at software developers and we're all looking to build little side projects and all have ideas for the next uh, exciting app that we're going to build. So I thought it would be cool to chat with you about some of the ideas that you've been exploring around trying to do this stuff, uh, you know, without being a big company like Facebook or Google or something ridiculous like that. So uh, maybe if you don't mind just introducing yourself a little bit and talking a little bit about what kind of motivated you to explore this topic. Yeah. So like you said, I'm, I'm Paul Jarvis. I'm, I don't even know what I do anymore. <laughs> it's such a weird, like, I think I am a writer and a designer. I, I mean, I am a product person as well. I started out for the first long time. I worked for myself for 20 years. I started out as a web designer developer for clients. And then I transitioned away from client work to products. Um, maybe six, seven years ago. So now I do software, online courses, uh, writing, books and articles, and that sort of thing. So I'm glad you brought up Facebook. It's funny because in the news, like what we're kind of sold as what success is, is like having a huge company with a a massive impact and and all of that. And like the Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs. and And it's just like, I think about their like what their lives must be like, and I don't want that. Like I, I can't imagine sitting in front of like American Congress and having to answer questions <laughs> from like old white guys who don't really know what the internet is. Like that, I don't know. That to me isn't success. And it, I think the point of the book is that if we're working for ourselves, we can kind of determine what success looks like. <laughs> yeah, like personally and deeply individualized. And I mean. For me, I actually like making things. So I don't want to promote myself out of a job I like into a job I wouldn't like. I don't want to manage people. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm also awful at managing people. I know some people are really, really good managers. I'm not a good manager. I'm not good at telling people what to do. I'm just good at doing work or working with other people who are just good at doing work. Like, even like if my, like I cook dinner in the house, and if my wife is like, well, can I help with dinner? I'm like, sure, but I don't know what you can do. <laughs> it's like, it just falls apart when I have to like give directions. So I, I've really worked hard at building a business where I don't have to give other people directions. And that's led to some, some interesting choices. <laughs> yeah. Think. Yeah. That's an interesting, an interesting topic in, in general. And I think maybe leads to, to a good place to sort of start this, this conversation Um, I think I'm much like you in the sense that, you know, I, my goals are to be able to spend as much time doing the things that are fulfilling to me as possible, right? Which is tinkering around with new ideas or building little tools or creating stuff that other people are going to have fun, uh, using for, for different stuff. Um, but even having tried to sort of optimize my life for that, I do find that, you know, by working for myself and being responsible for, 
you know, providing an income to my family, there's still a whole heck of a lot of stuff I have to do that I wish I didn't have to do. Stuff mm-hmm. that I actually wouldn't have to do if I just like worked at a regular job that I only have to do because I have a job. So I'm curious to know like maybe what systems you have in place or anything that help you kind of look at working for yourself as like designing your life and being able to just do the things that actually you find enjoyable but also like how do you avoid doing all the stuff that now you're forced to do because you only work by yourself and you don't have anyone's help um that you really wish you didn't have to do yeah i think it's funny because i think a lot of times people like us are like poo poo on the idea of like a lifestyle business because i think it kind of has like bad connotations of like i'm working on a beach only making like sleazy info products kind of thing where i think any job you do is a lifestyle business. Like if you start a venture-backed tech company in the Valley, you have a very specific set of prescribed things that are part of your life, basically working all the time and not having any life. Yeah. Whereas I think it's funny too, because I I was talking to part of the book, I, I interviewed lots of people who are much smarter than me because that's how most people like myself write books where I don't have, I don't know, all of the things and I'm not the smartest. So I just talk to people who are smarter than me. Um, So I was talking to Jason Freed, the one of Basecamp guys, and he's like, every business is a lifestyle business. So it doesn't matter what you do. You have a very specific lifestyle based on the type of work and the type of business you choose to build. And I think for me, so I have like, so the book title is Company of One, right? But it's not literally it doesn't literally mean like you have to be a one-person business i actually think being a one-person business is ridiculously hard it's hard to be good at all of the things you do to make money but then all of the things you have to do to keep the business running so for myself i like having a small team of people so like i have a bookkeeper and an accountant i know how to make money i don't know how to tell the government how much I made in specific ways and pay them the least amount of money possible. Before I started working for myself, I was like, well, if you make a certain amount, you owe the government a certain amount. And it's just fixed. Like if it was that easy, we could all file our own taxes. So not that way. So having a good accountant literally saves me a pretty much about at this point, pretty much about the same amount as I pay him to do my taxes. Mm -hmm. He saves me that in the government. So it net nets as a wash, which is awesome. I have a lawyer who helps me um, not have to deal with lawsuits and not have to sue anybody or get sued. I have people that I work with that help with writing because I may be decent at putting ideas down that are entertaining or valuable. I can't write very well. I mean, we both probably grew up in the same education system where there really wasn't a focus on grammar and sentence structure. Like I didn't get that in school. So like I'm an awful writer. So I have somebody who helps, who takes the articles and the books that I write and just turns them into better English. I don't have to be good at proofreading if I'm a writer. I just have to be good at writing, which a lot of people don't. They're like, oh, I'm bad at writing technically. Cool. I'm awful at writing technically. And I still have um, like people that read my writing. I still get a book deal somehow. And so I think that like those kind of things. And I also work on projects where... If I'm partnering with somebody and a bunch of the software products are partnerships where I can just work with those people. And so for all of these relationships, I look to work with people who I don't have to manage. So one, they end up costing more because they're good at what they do, Mm -hmm. but I still save money and I save time and I get to do what I like to do because I don't have to manage those people. I don't need to check in. I don't want to have to check in on somebody like, hey, are you still doing the work I'm paying you to do? It's like, I don't want to do that. I just want to pay somebody, pay them well, and have them do the work where I don't have to manage them. I don't have to do anything. They just get the work done and do it. So, like, I have a small team of people, but I don't, they're not full time. I don't need to worry about HR. I don't really even know how any of that works. I'm not, I don't feel the weight of responsibility for these people. So, if they're working for me, they're working for me on that project alone. They have other clients. They like, if I don't need them for a month, I don't feel bad. They don't feel bad. They probably don't even notice. So I've kind of structured my my business around and making decisions around my business around what I know I really like about how my business operates, because I think that that's really important. I think a lot of times we back into a lifestyle based on the based on business decisions where I think 
we can back into business decisions based on the life that we want instead. And I think that actually makes a lot more sense sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think you're sort of like hinting at a distinction that I think is maybe worth exploring, which is kind of the difference between hiring someone versus like partnering with someone. What do you think about like that distinction? Like what's important about that to you? Yeah. So for me personally, like if I'm going to, if I know I, I, I need to like somebody else's skill set long term, I'd rather like, honestly, I'd rather than be a partner because then I know I'm driven. I know I do work really well. I want to find a partner that's the same. I want to find a partner that it's a 50 50 split. Like I've been in partnerships where it wasn't equal and the person with less ownership on the project always felt like an employee. And I don't mm. I didn't really like that. They didn't feel like they own the project enough to be driven enough and motivated enough to just make decisions and run with things. So for me, I like to partner with people who are as driven and motivated as I am, who know how to get things done. But I also think it's important to partner with people who share at least a general similar vision as you. Like it wouldn't make sense knowing what everybody knows about me to partner with somebody who wants to have a business the size of Facebook or Google. Like it wouldn't make sense if I want to have a, a small, like very lean team it wouldn't make sense if I partnered with somebody who just is looking to grow it as quickly and as rapidly as possible. So I think having that discussion early, like it's a relationship, man. Like I wouldn't want to get into a relationship with somebody if like I really wanted kids and she like really didn't want kids. Like these are important things to talk about, especially for business, like what your long-term goals are because they need to at least kind of align or align at least enough where you're not going to be butting heads with them if things work out, like the best case in it, like it's people can pretty much be on the same page if things aren't going well. It's harder to be on the same page when things are going well, because you, that opens you up to more opportunity. Success can lead to the freedom to make decisions. But in that case, then sometimes decisions may not align and then it could it could just lead to badness. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so when it comes to this idea of like building, you know, uh, you know, a company of one or a small company that's just a small team of people who, you know, it sounds like ideally is a small group of partners kind of working on building something together. What do you kind of see the definition of a small company like that being in in terms of like, you know, a potential, like how much money a, a company like that wants to make or like, what do you kind of see as like the, the differences, I guess, in, in the mindset between trying to, or at least worrying about building a business that has to grow and grow and grow and grow, um, versus something that, you know, you only has to support the, maybe the three people who put it together in, uh, the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, that ties into the definition of what I think a company of one, or at least a company of one mindset is, and that's that it questions growth. And sometimes growth makes sense, but sometimes it doesn't. And I think in the scenario that you're describing, I think we all kind of start a business in the same place, like at zero. <laughs> yeah. We all start with no customers and and needing revenue and customers and traction and all of that thing. So we all start with the requirement of growth. We all need to grow to get it to a point where it's profitable. And if a business is profitable, it's much more durable. Like it's hard for a business to go out of business if it's small and continues to make enough money. And so I think what's important here is to think about that word, is to think about enough. Because if we all start at zero and we all need to grow, we don't have enough in the beginning. We all need to grow to reach enough. But where I think a lot of companies or a lot of founders, um, where, where things can go awry in their mindset, is that they don't question what enough is, and they just continue to have this rapid, unending growth mindset forever. And so if we don't think about what enough is, or how we know we've reached enough, or what will change when we do reach enough, then we're just going to continue with the mindset that we all had at the onset of starting the thing. So I think the point of the book and really the thesis of the book is to figure out like what enough is and it's different for everybody, just like the definition of success, I think, is different for everybody. And to think about like how I know when I've reached enough. And for me, I know how much revenue I need personally 
to cover all the freelancers that I work with, to cover my expenses, which are ridiculously lean, and then to have enough money to put a lot of it into savings and then some of it to pay myself personally. So if I know what enough is for me, then I can work towards reaching enough. So I know, so a specific example of that is I know I don't need, I know my enough number is small enough that I don't need to rely on paid acquisition for any of the products that I have. I can rely on organic methods to get enough customers. I also know that if I make products good enough, that more than half of the people who have bought one thing from me have bought more than one thing from me. So I can focus a lot of my efforts on retention instead of acquisition. And retention is easier because yeah. they already, they're already already interested enough to buy one thing from me. If I make that one thing so good that they want to buy another thing from me, then that costs less time, effort, and energy to get them to, to buy something again because the sales cycle is shorter. They already know me. They already know the value of the work that I do. They can just they can just pick it up. So I think when when we start to think about okay, what enough is, how we know we've reached it, what will change when we reach it, we can start to think like, does this growth actually serve the durability of my business? Or is this growth serving my ego? A lot of times we just think like, oh, well, maybe I want to have a bigger business because it sounds better. It might sound better at like a dinner party if I say, oh, I have a business of 100 people versus like I sit at home in my home office that I share with my pet rat and like work (laughs) by myself on my computer all day. But like I also don't really care if somebody judges me because of that because I don't think it matters. Like I think that one, I can probably make a really good living doing this. And like, I like sitting at home and working by myself every day. And I, so I don't need that. So I think sometimes like we need ego enough to start something. Like we need ego to start a business because we, in in supposing that, we think that we can do something better than what exists in the market. And that's good. Having ego in that regard is awesome. And I think that's super needed. Where ego can sometimes fail us is when it's like, maybe you need more. Like, maybe you'll be happier if you have more. Maybe you'll be more respected if you have more. And I don't think that's the case. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I really like the idea of of figuring out, you know, what what enough is. I think that's like a, maybe a thought that a lot of people don't have, like actually setting like a line in the sand where it's like, well, this is what this business actually has to do to meet like what my goals are on day one. I think like maybe what happens to a lot of people is you get, you start a business, the business, um, you know, it does well and you have more money in the bank at the end of the day than you expected. And the immediate thought process there is like, okay, like we're, we're profitable. So I, I bet if we hire one more person, we can make even more money next year. And you sort of like figure out ways to, to basically spend and spend and grow and grow instead of like thinking back to like, what was it that I was, that I actually looked at as a goal at the very, very beginning. You know what I mean? Like once you hit enough, like are there other decisions that you could make now instead of, of going uh, towards, towards growth? And I think, um, I think that's something that you, you talked about, like, or that you're talking that you talk about in the book and that you've talked about with, with stuff around it. Like, um, once you've hit this point where you have what you need, um, instead of trying to grow, maybe there's something else that you can do with like that, that freedom now, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that's the whole point of the book. And that's the whole, it's funny because when I started to talk about this topic, I was like, I'm just a weirdo (laughs) guy who has this idea. And then I started to write about it mostly on my newsletter to start. And I just floored by the amount of responses of people being like, I thought I was the only one who wanted to just have like a profitable small business and keep it at that. Like I don't need an empire. And I think like as a society and as like people that follow like tech news or, or anything really, it's like the people who are put on pedestals are the ones that have grown a specific, a very, very specific version of success. And it looks like one specific thing where I think success can look like anything. It just depends on like, is this making your life better? And it doesn't necessarily, like we don't all have to be Elon Musk's yeah. or like Mark Zuckerberg's to be happy. Like even through, throughout the book, I tell stories too of people who are like, uh, this guy, Tom Fishburne, who runs a, 
an illustration studio called Marketune. He was working as a C-level executive at a food company, making like ridiculously good money. He had an MBA as well from Harvard. Like he basically followed the track of like, I'm a smart guy in high school, so I'm going to go to get like I guess an Ivy League education and then because I have an Ivy League education I have to go work in the in the corporate world and like work up to like C-level employment status and now he works for himself uh, running a cartoon agency he makes more money now he makes like two or three times more than he made at that corporate job but what really works for him and what's really like the the point of the story is that he gets. He lives in Northern California, and he gets to sit in his office. He built like a shed in his backyard, and shed's at the wrong word because it's nice. It's really nice, and I think of like my shed, and it's not very nice. <laughs> but like he sits in his shed and draws with his two daughters every day, and like they get to sit and do the same thing that their dad does every day. And like he makes more money, he's happier, he's way less stressed, and like that to me, like I can't think of a better version of success for him than that. And so I think we can extrapolate from there and be like, okay, well, success is deeply personal. So what is it that I want? Because if we follow somebody else's, if we move towards somebody else's version of success, there's there's two things. Either we get that and we're living a life that they want, or maybe they even don't want, and we're just living somebody else's version of success if we win at that, or if we lose we feel bad about chasing something and chasing something that we may not have even wanted in the first place. Yeah. So either way, it doesn't seem like the most logical thing to do. I think if we instead define our own version of success and work towards that, whatever it looks like, I think we'll be happier, less stressed and, and be able to like make better, make better strides towards it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Do you, can you think of any like examples of, I don't know if there's a way to like go through this exhaustively because of the fact that it's deeply personal, but like what sort of factors might someone consider when they're trying to think for themselves? Like what, what would I consider a success, you know, for my own life? Yeah. So I think if we're looking at success as it kind of relates to growth, we can, we can ask ourselves like a series of prompts. It's so funny. Like a lot of people write business books and they're like, this is the blueprint. Like this is the thing you do to win. Whereas my book is like, these are some of the things you should think about to figure it out on your own. Yeah. So a lot of the book is questions. So I've kind of come up with a few questions that we can kind of start to think about and internalize to, 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 to get to the point where it's like, okay, this is what I, this is actually what I want. So like I said uh, a couple minutes ago, thinking about enough. So how much is enough? How we know when we've got there and what will we do differently when we have reached it? Um, thinking about growth as it relates to ego, as as we talked about as well, like, does this growth serve me? Does this growth serve my customers? Or does this growth just serve my ego? Because sometimes bigger, more or scale doesn't even help or serve our existing customers. They're the ones already paying attention. They're the ones already giving us money. So if it's not in their best interest, our business isn't going to be durable in the long term, I don't think. The other thing that we can think about is the the cost of opportunities. And I think this is a big one, especially when we start to see wins in our business. Because every opportunity comes with a a cost in terms of maintenance. And I mean, to, to put it in relation to software, it's like every feature we add could have, it's a one, it takes time to build. Two, it takes time to explain or market. And three, it takes time to support, possibly on a daily basis. So maybe we don't need to add a feature if it's going to cost us a lot more in terms of support, right? So yeah. doing things like figuring out what the what the back end or long term costs of all the decisions or opportun- all the decisions we make or the opportunities we say yes to is huge. And I think we always need to kind of work backwards into like what we want our lives to look like, like what we want our lifestyle to be and make business decisions, especially if we're working for ourselves, make business decisions that lead us closer to that instead of further away. Like if I know that I want to work primarily from home, spend a lot of time with my family, be outside in nature as much as possible, then I don't need to make decisions that take me away from that. I don't need to make decisions where I'm on the road all the time or I have to have a physical office with staff I need to keep an eye on. So if I work backwards into business decisions from the life I know I want to have, then those decisions become easier. And it's not just like, oh, I can't believe I said no to that. Like that could have been such an amazing opportunity or yeah. that could have like, I could have taken fun. Like 
I've been offered funding for a bunch of my software products that I've said no to, not because I don't like money. Like I, I like money. Sure. <laughs> Money's great. But because I know that the costs associated with that, like if, if somebody's investing in my business, then their interests are self-interests, not necessarily the interests of my customers. And two, a lot of people want to invest in teams, not individuals, especially with VC money. And they expect that there's going to be this exponential growth that I don't necessarily agree with. So it's easier for me to turn down like decent amounts of money because I know it doesn't align with my long-term goals. Whereas if I didn't have those or if I wasn't aware of those things, then I might be more inclined to say yes to that because it'd just be like, here are bags of money. Like that's not how it works, but it's kind of how it works. And it would be harder to say no to things that don't align with the business that I want to have if I hadn't first thought about the business that I want to have. Yeah, yeah. You're making me think a little bit here because uh, I think about like, I'm trying to like what comes to mind for me with that example is you talked about like being on on the road a lot and you know I speak at conferences and stuff like that pretty regularly at least like a, a few a year and I like doing it as long as it's kept to like a sustainable level and mm-hmm. I'm passionate about the people that I'm going to see there that's what makes it fun for me is I work remote from home I don't want to commute and be with a big group of people all the time. I do like collaborating with people, but it's super nice being able to work from home and have just privacy and be able to do things my own way. Um, but still a few times a year, it's awesome to be able to get together with a bunch of people who are all interested in the same things that you are. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time I get invited to a conference and I know I don't really want to, to go because it just takes up so much time and there's so much preparation, like any any conference is a two week event, really. You know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but I always feel I always struggle to say no to things like that a lot of time because I'm always asking myself that question, like, ah, oh, like uh, this is, you know, I know this is like good for my career. This will help me build my audience, or this will get me like more exposure. I wish I really wanted to do this, and sometimes I'll go do stuff even if I don't really feel like I I want to, but this sort of framework that you're you're thinking about where it's like is this decision going to give me more of what i want or less of what i want and get me closer to what i want or further away from it um makes that a lot easier in a lot of ways because i still feel like there's a little bit of like sometimes you got to do stuff that maybe you don't want to do so that in the in the future you can do more of what you want to do and it's not super black and white and it's a little bit tricky but by thinking about it the way that you're proposing it makes me think like okay what are the what are the reasons that i think i should be speaking at this conference for example like what am i going to get out of it um and what are the reasons that i don't want to do it well it's i have to go somewhere and fly somewhere and be away from my family for x amount of time or be away from my projects for x amount of time and it makes me sort of think like okay well if what i'm trying to optimize for is like being at home and working in front of my computer on the stuff that i want to work on but the thing i'm worried about not getting from being at this conference is like helping people and putting information out into the world you know maybe there's a way to actually get both of those because like speaking at a conference isn't the only way for me to spread a message you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Um, and i haven't really thought about it that way before until this conversation (laughs) (laughs) well one that's good and and two i think there's always there's always multiple ways to to accomplish the what we want Right. Like I haven't ever done any conference speaking and I still have a decent audience. Maybe conference speaking would have been the thing that made my audience a a ton bigger. I don't I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not Zoltar or anything like that. But like I know the kind of things that I like to do and I know the kind of things that I'm really good at doing. So like I focus I focus on those things and I think it's okay to have boundaries and it's okay to. So one, I think it's easier sometimes to just have a, a. a global rule. So if somebody asked me to speak at a conference, because people ask me to speak at conferences, not as much, not very much anymore, but in the past they have. My answer is easy because it's, I don't do conference speaking. It's nothing personal. I just don't do that. So it's easy for me to say no to those things because internally I have a rule and externally I'm not making that person feel bad that invited me because they're just like, he just doesn't do speaking. Yeah, (laughs) it's not that he speaks at everyone else's conference except mine. Exactly. (laughs) But sometimes when it's not black and white, like you're saying, sometimes it's more about like optimizing for like, okay, what conference, 
will give me the best return on investment of time and energy? And sometimes that answer could just be, that's where all the people that I like to hang out with are going to be. And the internet can sometimes feel lonely. So if I get to see everybody at like microconf or something like that, then awesome. Like I'm going to do the things that are going to give me the best return on investment, not necessarily even money, just necessary, just in terms of like energy or enjoyment. And I think we can make decisions like that on a more like case by case basis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Odeer. So Odeer is a tool that makes it really simple to monitor your website's uptime and get notified if your site goes down. Now, what makes Odeer different than a lot of other uptime monitoring tools is that it doesn't simply monitor a single URL. Instead, you provide Odeer with your base URL, so like fullstackradio.com, for example, and not only will Odeer verify that that URL is working, it'll actually follow all of the links on that page, crawling your entire site looking for any issues that it finds, uh, not just issues on the homepage. It'll let you know whenever your site isn't responding, uh, if any of your pages have any mixed content warnings, as well as if it finds any broken links anywhere on the entire site. Uh, oh dear will also monitor your SSL certificates, so of course it can let you know if one of your certificates is going to expire soon, uh, but it'll also monitor your entire certificate chain, making sure that none of the intermediate certificates have been revoked or having any other issues. Uh, it'll also monitor your SSL certificates for a whole bunch of other complicated stuff that I don't even understand, but if any of it broke or was misconfigured, that stuff would all take your site down, so oh dear will let you know about all those problems as soon as they happen so you can fix them right away. Uh, so how do you find out when something is busted if you're using Odeer? Well, Odeer can actually send you notifications through tons of different notification platforms. Uh, so you can configure it to send you notifications via email, uh, via SMS directly to your phone, uh, via Slack, via Discord, and a bunch more as well. If you happen to be a user of Laravel Forge, Odeer can actually import all of your sites from Forge using the Forge API and start monitoring everything for you automatically. So if you're looking for an awesome uptime monitoring solution, definitely head over to odeer.com. App, and if you use the coupon code Full Stack Radio, all uppercase, all one word, they'll give you fifty percent off of your first month. So thanks to Odia for sponsoring the podcast this week. Back to the show. Something about this whole like uh, you know staying small and avoiding growth thing that I think would be, I think is important to maybe nip in the bud a little bit or talk about is, I think like you specifically have a live like a pretty intentionally minimalist life compared to a lot of other people i don't like we've never talked before in, until today and i don't know everything about you but from, from what i know like you kind of live out in a remote <laughs> area um you know you grow a lot of your own food and, and and stuff like that um do you think that like this idea of trying to build like a small company that like supports you is, is only compatible with like a fairly minimalist lifestyle or do these ideas apply just as much to someone who wants to live in a $600,000 house in the suburbs and has a couple kids who are on sports teams and you know what I mean? Like just has a more expensive, more kind of, I guess like norm quote unquote normal life, I guess. Yeah, I think that so there's a there's a few things to unpack there. So I think minimalism can mean something different to everybody. I know people that have like 37 items and live out of a backpack and travel the world Mm -hmm. that I would not do well in that life. I'm also very claustrophobic. So like I have friends that have tiny houses and like I could never live in a tiny house because I just really, really claustrophobic. And so I like having not a huge house, but a decent size house with very little in it. And that to me makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people focus on like the the vanity metrics of business. So I think gross revenue is a vanity metric because I don't think gross revenue matters at all Hmm. because it could cost, it could cost me just random numbers. It could cost me like, $100,000 $100,000 to make $500,000, where I, I guess my expenses would be like 20% math. Sure. <laughs> or it could be I spent $800,000 to make a million dollars, where my revenue, where my margins are like so like minute compared to the first numbers. And so I think I'm always, I always care a lot about optimizing the bottom line, because especially for a small business, if you cut out expenses, you're going to see a huge difference there. So I think 
it makes sense to optimize in your life as well for what kind of enough is. So I know that the the more I keep my expenses down, the more I can make the same same amount of gross profit, but end up with more net. But for me, I don't have kids, so it's easier for me to, I don't have to spend money on education or sports teams. Whereas like our friend Justin Jackson has a lot of kids. Sure. <laughs> His life just costs more by virtue of the fact that he has an extra four mouths to feed yeah. versus me. Right. So I think it just depends on that. And I mean, so minimalism for me is just figuring out what enough is. And I think that minimalism as it relates to business is really just about thinking about like, I'm kind of a hedonist. Like, I want to pursue enjoyment with revenue attached. So I remove all the things that don't serve me. And I just think about the things like the freedom that being as minimal as possible gives me. So freedom from financial worry. If I'm spending less, I don't need to have to make as much to get by. Mm -hmm. So I'm not stressed out about money if I'm just spending as little as possible. Um, Freedom from the stress of being busy. I actually hate being busy. Like, I feel like if you're busy all the time, you need to think about what your priorities are because... I'm okay to be busy a bit of the time. Like if I have a like software launch or feature updates, like I'm going to be busy that day. But then the next week, if I'm working 16 hours a day all the time, I'm going to burn out. Yeah. Like we're not machines. So if I don't take care of my body, if I'm not busy sometimes and not busy other times, it's it's tough. And I think the other thing is freedom from the the weight of responsibility. And I feel like... If I hired people, and I have friends that have hired people and grown agencies or, or businesses, and they feel responsible for their employees. Like I've had conversations with friends who they've had to let employees go from downsizing, not because of performance. And like those those employees have kids or they have mortgages and stuff. And like like I can like I can literally feel that weight that my friends have having to deal with the responsibility of a bigger business. And like. I don't want to to have that. It's funny. That I'll tell you another little story from the book. Yeah. Uh, my friend Miranda Hickson, who runs, um, she does like architectural design and furniture design for small startups in the Bay Area. Her dad, and this is back a little while, like before freelancing and entrepreneurship was like on vogue, he got let go of, he was an architect and he got let go at a big company. So he started his own business, which was weird back then. Even when I started in the nineties, it was weird to say that I worked for myself. People didn't get it. And he had, his office was a big, what were those CRT monitors? The ones that were super long. I don't even know what they're called anymore, (laughs) but he had like the big computer and like the big, like Pentium, like processor (laughs) computer. And like he had a sticky note on the monitor that said overhead equals death. So every decision he made was like, is this going to increase my overhead? If this increases my overhead, it increases my responsibility. It increases the amount I need to earn every month to break even and make a profit. So the more I can decrease the bottom number, the more I can decrease the overhead, the expenses, the faster I can get to profit and the less stress I have by reaching that profit sooner. So in in my head, it's always like, I'm less stressed if I have to spend less money. It doesn't mean, like, it's funny. I was talking to my, when I was deciding what publisher to go with for the book, the, one of the guys that I was talking to, who I ended up working with, didn't really understand having like a minimalist lifestyle or like having a minimalist business. And he was like, so do you like live in a cave in the woods and eat like rice and beans and stuff? And I'm like... (laughs) No, dude, like I drive a sports car. Like I like I'm a member of society and like the things that I like, I'm okay to spend money on. But for the majority of the time, like if I don't need to spend the money, I'm not going to unless it's something that's going to bring me like ridiculous enjoyment. Like driving to me is one of my favorite pastimes. Yeah. So I'm okay to spend a bit of money on that. Whereas like I don't care about clothes. So like I'm wearing Costco sweats yeah. every day, all day, <laughs> Costco sweats. Love it. So Yeah. Um, I think the the bit about uh, trying to to sort of limit your responsibility and how much you kind of have to stress about making sure you're providing for for other people who are dependent on you is a is a big one. There's another element to that that sometimes I, I worry about sometimes, which is like on one hand, it's easy for me to say like, yeah, I don't want to have that responsibility. I don't I don't want someone to be dependent on me, and that's why I uh, am sort of averse. To hiring people um, but on the, the other side of that sometimes I worry if like that's almost like an imposter syndrome problem that I have and where it's like 
uh, am I qualified to have someone work under me, uh, to be, you know, to manage people and stuff like that? Like, is, is there an element of that that you think about as well or not, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that relates to decision-making in general for myself where I very, like, I don't have a lot. It's funny. Cause like, I feel like I have a big ego, but no confidence, but I think those two are probably related in most cases. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when I, like when I, when I'm considering a decision, I think like, is it, is this, am I scared of doing this out of fear or am I like of succeeding or failing or, or whatever? Or am I, am I wary or adverse to making this decision because I just know it's not the right decision. And if it's the, if it's the former, if it's, I'm just scared of making this decision, then I'm probably going to take action even though I'm scared Mm -hmm. of doing it. Whereas if, I'm adverse to doing something because I honestly don't want to do it, then I'm okay to to lean on that. I think that it kind of makes sense to to have like, and it sounds so hippy dippy, but like I think it makes sense to have a a, a sense of purpose or like a, a greater mission for for what you're doing. Because then I just think it makes decision making either. Like for me, purpose is the lens through which I run all business decisions. So if my purpose is to help people and make a difference, that doesn't need to scale. That can be a couple people. As like it basically needs to scale till I have enough revenue and past that it doesn't matter. Yeah. So like I don't need employees to 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 align with my goal or my purpose in 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 business. Whereas if I had a different purpose then that my decisions might be different or what's worse if I didn't have any purpose it, you're going to end up probably in a situation where it's just growth for the sake of growth sake or like hiring for the sake of hiring sake. Cause you think that's what you're supposed to do. So I think kind of taking a bit of an introspective look at things, even from like, I feel like having a purpose is so pragmatic, but it's just got this like hippie wash sure. <laughs> to it, <laughs> where people think like, Oh, having a purpose is for like those hippie lifestyle businesses. Yeah. And I'm like, no, this is so pragmatic. This is the lens through which all the decision-making in my business is run through. So I think that that's really important. And I think that that's, it's just hard, dude. Like it's hard sometimes because like running a business is hard. And I think that we can all get caught up on the like running the business, the like working with clients, the building the products that we don't necessarily take the time to take a step back to think about the business as a whole or the direction that it's going in or if it aligns with what we truly want. And I think that that's important to to do, to not just work in the business, but to sometimes work on the business as well. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So switching gears, there's kind of one final topic that I, I wanted to get into that I think um, there's going to be some interesting insights in, which is uh, once you sort of internalize this idea of enough and you sort of have this new lens for like looking at what you're trying to do with your business... Um, I think it'd be interesting to talk about how that influences like what sort of things you decide to build. So a topic or an idea that I've heard Seth Godin talk about that I, I that really stuck with me was this idea of like the minimum viable audience. Um, have you heard Seth talk about that before? Um, no, but I kind of knowing Seth's writing fairly well, I kind of, I, I think that that makes sense. And I mean, it even relates to what was that guy who, who wrote that article years and years ago about having a hundred true fans. Yeah, it was, as well. it was actually Seth's stuff references that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that that's, that's important to kind of think about because like, I know that like, I don't where the number of customers that I have is currently it doesn't need to get bigger and so i don't need to focus on growth or growth hacking or acquisition i can just focus on retention like like i talked about it's easier to 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 retain people than to acquire new customers and so i can just focus on that even with my mailing list like i know my mailing list generates the bulk of my revenue the the size that it's at i can it it supports me it, it hits my enough um revenue yeah. goals but it's also at a size where I can send out an email on Sunday, I can get replies to it, and I can spend a couple hours replying to all those people. 
and I'm connected to them, they're connected to me. Yeah. I get insight into my audience, which is awesome and super useful data, and they feel like they're connected with me because like they're it's not going to like no reply at my domain. Sure. <laughs> so like I feel like I can learn so much from my audience and then they can have a direct connection with me. Whereas if my if my list was like a million compared to 30,000, like I can't imagine the number of, like I couldn't have those replies going to my inbox and stay sane. Yeah. Right. So like, I know the size that my audience needs to be to maintain the the business that I want and it's enough. And it's as I, like, I just keep coming back to that because I think it's so important. And I think like, I've killed off businesses that were profitable, but required too much to maintain. Like I had a, I had a, a side business selling WordPress themes they required so much supporting anything in the WordPress ecosystem is just so ridiculous. And I sell, yeah. I still sell a plugin, so I know. But like that business took so much maintenance and so much support that even though it was making profit, it wasn't worth it to me because I couldn't do any of the other things that I like doing in my business. Yeah. So I would rather focus on the things that I can do that require just enough work to build because I also have a lot of things on the go. So if any of my software products required like eight hours a day of support or development, I wouldn't want to do them. Mm -hmm. Same with if my courses were the same. Like I try to build everything to be as automated and predictive as possible. That leads to the least amount of one-on-one interaction unless it's required. Like if somebody, and I even found that with sales, like a lot of times people just email when like a course is open or when there's like uh, a software product that's available and they just want to know that there's a human being on the other end. So yeah. I, I love answering those emails because I feel like at the beginning, I was like, why are you asking this? Like it's on the sales page. And it, it, as I started to think about it and started to see patterns in it, it was just like, this person just wants to see that there's somebody that gives a shit on the yeah. other end. Right. Yeah. So like that kind of thing is good. But like if I get the same like five questions from every single person that buys the course and gets onboarded into it, then I'm doing a crappy job. Like I try to build all of the onboarding processes for all of like for courses and for software to be predictive in that I try to answer questions that people probably have or have had in the past, answer them before they have that question. So I'm not just like if I have to sit and support, if I have to answer the same questions day in, day out, one, that's boring. And two, I'm doing a crappy job of of educating my customers or potential customers on how things work. So I'm always trying to look at the most that I can automate to free up the most amount of my time to get back to making stuff or to get back to doing like actually useful things for my customers. For sure. Something that you mentioned there that um, I thought was interesting is you talked about like, uh, you know, the size of your newsletter, for example. And up to this point in the conversation, I've been sort of thinking of enough as like enough revenue, you know what I mean? And sort of just thinking about like the dollar amount, like am I making enough to sort of support the lifestyle that I want to have? But I think it's actually really interesting to sort of extrapolate that same idea to like anything else that you measure in your business, Mm -hmm. right? So with like newsletter subscribers, if say you need, say like last year you had 40,000 people on your newsletter and you made enough money like do you need more people on your newsletter this year now or can you just like kind of make the note of that it's like okay now i know that enough newsletter subscribers is forty thousand. i don't need any more than that if i if my newsletter doesn't grow at all next year that's not a failure at all because like i Mm -hmm. hit the point of like sustainability and i'm like holding that and i think that's a really interesting thing to think about for sure. And I mean, I think as, as long as it covers churn, if we're talking customers or subscribers, yeah, as long yeah, as it covers yeah, yeah. the people who churn out, because people are going to churn out um, always. But yeah, I, like, I mean, I don't have to do, like when I started my newsletter, it didn't, and that's what we talked about before, in the pre-enough stage, when I started out, it didn't have enough subscribers. And then, so I did things like a ton of guest articles and a ton of like cross promo and joint venture webinars and stuff like that. And I did a, I did things to grow my list. But then when I realize like my list is actually at a place, one where it's supporting me financially because the bulk of my revenue comes from mailing list subscribers. And two, it's at a size where if it grew bigger, I couldn't have the personal touches that I really like and that I know my audience really likes. So maybe I can stop doing those things. Maybe I can optimize for the enough that I have 
instead of growing towards enough because they've hit that for specifically the the newsletter subscriber yeah. thing. So it's I think almost maybe like having you might upper intentionally limits. want to slow down the number of people yeah. that are subscribing. <laughs> yeah, I do so little now to promote my new. I should do zero to promote my newsletter at this yeah. point. So and it grows just enough to cover the churn, and then sometimes it grows if somebody else shares it, which is totally fine. But like, I don't have to put my energy, effort, or money towards growing it at this point. So I can focus on other things and I can focus even on just like being able to have a couple hours to reply to the couple hundred people that hit reply on a on any given Sunday. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app. Number one, you can't discover all bugs this way. And number two, some users don't even bother submitting bug reports. They just wait for you to fix it, and if you don't, they just leave the service. Now, the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring, which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time, and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, teams from big companies you might have heard of like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, so if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for full stack radio listeners. If you head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio, create an account and install Rollbar in your application, Rollbar will give you a $100 gift card that you can spend to support any of your favorite open source projects at Open Collective. So thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week. Back to the show. So getting back to like the idea of how some of this thinking like affects what you what you're going to build or what you're going to put into the world. Um, I think a problem that a lot of people have that they might not even identify as a problem is like, maybe they have an idea for something. And if you ask them like, okay, well like who can use this? A lot of people will give you answers like, well, this group of people could use it for this. And this group of people could use it for this. Like everyone can use this. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting uh, to talk about because when you're, when you're looking at this idea of like trying to sort of, stay small so you you get to where you need to be but don't get any bigger than that so you're not you don't have to worry about hiring new people or or whatever or whatever whatever um it's it sort of makes you think about like like who you're trying to target with what you're building and who specifically you're building things for uh, a little bit differently so i'd be curious to know like in your own business and with like the various kind of projects and stuff you have like fathom analytics for example um how this like line of thinking about you know what is going to be enough affects how you think about what features something needs to have you know what i mean or what what the the positioning of a product should be yeah i think that's a great a great question and i think that because i do a lot of marketing stuff i don't know how to market to everybody like, I, I don't know how that works. I don't know how to um, try to get the attention of the internet. <laughs> for, yeah. like, it's, it's too big of a, uh, of a market to reach. Whereas like with Fathom specifically, I know that there's a lot of people who care a lot about privacy. And there's a lot of people that can, can cross through that segment of people who just want like the important data from their, from their website stats and not... Like, I don't know how to use Google Analytics. Like, I live on the internet, and I still don't know how to use 99% of the reports on Google Analytics. Yeah. So, it's like, I know that there's a cross-section of people who care about privacy and simple data, simple measurable data, and they don't want to trade that data for the people's privacy that are visiting their website. And so, if, if we just slice down and slice down to, like, okay, this is the specific thing that I want this to solve. It's not everybody. Like, it's so not everybody. Yeah. Right? But it's enough people where if I have that in mind, then if I'm writing a sales page, 
it's easy for me to speak directly to that group of people because I, that group of people small. I know those people. Like yeah. those are those are the people that I talk to all the time. So I can write a sales page where it's probably going to put off people who aren't a good fit for that because they're going to be crappy customers. Like, yeah, I'm sure we've all had customers who are not a good fit and it's just painful to deal with those people. I would rather those people read the site, be turned off by it, not buy it, not have to waste either of our time. And so I can write things that are catered specifically just to one tiny, tiny group of people. And then the benefit of that is those people feel like, I feel like this page is written for me. Like you have no idea how many times I've got emails from people, even my newsletter being like, how are you reading my mind? It's like, (laughs) I'm not, I just know the tiny, tiny, tiny group of people that I reach. I know a lot about them because I spend a lot of time getting to know them. Yeah. So I can write things specifically for them and that's going to draw them closer and it's going to push all the other people away, but that's fine if it's pushing the other people away because they were never going to buy anything. It's just like, it's so stupid, but like swearing for me. Yeah. People take such offense to me swearing that I have a swear word in my welcome email for my newsletter because I'm like, <laughs> I just need to put this in there because yeah. I know if you're going to have a problem with me very occasionally swearing, you're not going to be a good fit. And like I've had somebody wanting a refund for a course because I said shit once in it. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't, I don't want that in my life. So I have yeah. a swear word in my welcome email because I want to drive the wrong people away. I also have some like stupid humor in my welcome email because I'm like, if you don't get my weird sense of humor, you're not going to get anything that there's humor in everything I make and I'm bad at humor. So it's not even good humor. It's just like my brand of awkward, weird humor. So like I try to be as specific as possible, even on sales pages, even when I'm trying to make money, like my most the email that generated the most one-time revenue for me for anything I ever did, I started when I was making it, it was in MailChimp, and I, I put a buy now button with like an arrow or a finger pointing to it, and I was looking at it, and I'm like, this is gross. <laughs> this is just garbage. <laughs> so instead, I was like, I, I don't even want to do this. I was like, I want to make money, but I don't want to make money like that, and I feel like I'm catering to an audience that I don't even want. And so instead, I put a picture of my pet rats as like the buy now button. And I'm like, if you want this course, click the picture of my rats <laughs> to buy it. And that email generated so much revenue because it was just like, I know the people who are going to be a good fit to be customers are just going to get it and it's going to work for them. And some people are going to be like, what is this? <laughs> like, they're going to be bad customers anyways. So I feel like being as personable as possible towards the very specific audience that you want to have and even focusing feature sets like Fathom could have a gazillion features in it. We're moving so slowly and so methodically with adding features to it that most big companies or most venture-backed companies would be like, what are you doing? And it's like, we have a a lot of paying customers. Our MRR is great for starting a few months ago. Uh, it's also open source and totally free if somebody wants yeah. the source code. So it's like we're working at a way, but we don't need a ton of revenue for this to be a success. Like we don't need this to be generating like millions of dollars a month for it to for it to be a win for us. Yeah. So I mean, we can make decisions and we can we can customize the positioning of it just to the specific group of people. I think the first sales page even made fun of Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> for a private, because it was like right when Facebook was going through a bunch of privacy woes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, and they track everybody and we're like, how would you track nobody? And there yeah. was like a Mark Zuckerberg joke. And I mean, I got just flayed for that on Hacker because it got really popular on Hacker News. And I just got flayed for that by some people. Like, you would be a dude, you'd be an awful customer. So I'm cool if you have a problem with me making one joke on a sales page. Because like, dude, you're never going to buy the software anyways. Because I also found that too, the people who complain the most about who I am as a person never really buy anything or if they do, they want a refund. So Mm -hmm. why am I going to cater? Why why cater to that? It just doesn't make sense. I think it makes (laughs) a ton of sense. I think the idea of just like not being afraid um, to scare people away and, and not even because like, you know, like you disagree with them or like, you know, quote unquote, the wrong people, but even just like the idea of not being scared or not being worried about scaring people away, as long as the people that like 
get it and love it is still more than the minimum number of people that you need to love it for it to meet your definition of success, you know? Yeah, like I don't want to stick my neck out there just because I think I'm right. I want to stick my neck out there in a way that relates to my audience and brings them closer to me. Otherwise, it's just ego. Otherwise, it's just me being like a shock jock (laughs) or whatever. Yeah, and I think it even applies to like um, just like dealing with with criticism from from people too, right? Like um, the example I'm thinking of in my head is like I have an open source CSS framework that has a uses a pretty controversial approach to to doing things, and there's so many people that just will hate on it, and it's hard not to let those people sort of get to you or to or to think like. Oh, maybe I should try and like incorporate some of the things that they want so that so this can be more useful to, to more people. Um, and I think that's a trap. I think it's it makes way more sense to just ignore those people and double down on this other huge group of people who likes it exactly how it is and wants it to keep going in the direction that you're already taking it in, you know? Yeah, a lot of software does well initially because it's opinionated. And then it just get you can just watch it get like watered down, watered down. Like it 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 basically ends like it goes from like IA Writer to Microsoft Word. Yeah, totally. <laughs> where it's just like I open. I had to buy a copy of Word. It hurt me. I had to buy a copy <laughs> of Word to work with my publisher. And like I'm looking at the the UI of Word, and I'm just like, there's just been so many decisions made just to cater to everybody that like I don't even know how to use Word, and it's so ugly. Yeah. That like I'm writing things in a markdown, <laughs> in like a markdown app that has no zero features, and I like that better. And then I'm pasting it into Word formatted, and yeah, it's just like it, it things take off because they are opinionated, and then we think we need to change that somehow, be, to to get even more successful. Where I think like even Basecamp, super opinionated software, but they just keep doubling down on what relates to their specific audience. Yeah, that it makes a whole lot of sense. And I mean, Basecamp isn't for everybody, but like how many users do they have like a lot i would so say enough. enough enough for sure yeah <laughs> and i've even talked to i've even talked to them about that like they tried paid acquisition to bump up their um, acquisition numbers and they stopped after i think they spent like a million dollars as well yeah. but they stopped after a month because they're like we're gro- like our growth is pretty linear and predictable and good and like if we're getting four thousand people a, a week signing up like yeah spending all this money to get like six thousand doesn't make a lot of sense and they didn't want to give money to like facebook and twitter which yeah I don't blame them so es- yeah especially if like with a, an example like Basecamp, like that's another perfect example of like those guys already have way more than enough i'm sure they would all be totally happy if like their acquisition <clears throat> perfectly countered their churn and that was it you know what i mean like um that would be that would be fine so yeah yeah and they only grow when because i really dived in because i think Basecamp is a really great example of a company of one that's more than one person so like i really dug into this with them and they grow and it makes sense like their growth makes their growth happens when it's too painful not to grow so when they have actual realized profits enough and growth enough in customers where they have to hire say another support person that's not because they're expecting to make more in the future or to have more customers in the future so they take the risk of hiring more people they same with buffer buffer does the exact same thing like they're happy exactly at the number that they're at in terms of like employees but if they have to grow a little bit based on like realized income or profit then it makes sense and in that case i'm like Growth makes sense there. Like I'm not yeah. the book and my 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 own thinking is an anti-growth. It's just how about we think about growth a little bit and just question it just a little bit before we decide whether to proceed or not. Did you ever talk to anyone um, when you were putting together the book that had any examples of like they were so averse to hiring that they figured out ways to like get fewer customers instead of having to support more customers? Yeah, my buddy Sean D'Souza, who runs Psychotactics, has like he doesn't want to make more than five hundred thousand dollars a year. So like he ba- he even like turns off the ability to buy things when he hits that because he knows that's the number that he can support well. So I think like it's so weird and so counter um, capitalist yeah. to have like 
no, I have a maximum, like I have my enough number. And then if it goes past that, I don't want to have to deal, like I don't want to have to deal with that. So, but it's like, I don't know. I personally, I think that that's smart. He does really well. He has the life that he wants. He can take care of the, his two nieces and, and, and teach them things that they aren't learning in school every day. He can go on long walks and have drink lots of coffee, which is important. Yeah. It's important, <laughs> important to me as well. So yeah, I think that there, yeah, there's definitely examples like that, but they're not talked about. And I mean, yeah. that's part of the reason why I wrote the book was because I wanted to give voice to these people who I think are just doing so well and are more successful than the people that we see in the new, in the news or the media that are just doing things a different way and that have figured out what enough is and, and work to what words optimizing for it. Not just like, Oh, I just need more. I just need more. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I think that's maybe a good place to, uh, to start wrapping up. So, cool. um, are there any, uh, closing thoughts or anything that you had or any, um, links or anything that you wanted to share where people can, uh, follow what you're doing or learn more about, uh, your book? Yeah. I mean, I think we covered enough part of yeah. my <laughs> awful sense of humor. Yeah. But yeah, so um, the book is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing in Business. Uh, it's available everywhere online and in pretty much every bookstore uh, when it comes out on January 15th. So it's either pre-orderable now, if you're listening to it now, or it's available now if you're listening to it after the 15th of January. Uh, I have a website for it, ofone.co, um, that's got a bunch of pre-order bonuses. And then I write a weekly newsletter um, called Sunday Dispatches on pjrvs.com. And I just share articles, pretty much what you and I were talking about um, once a week. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you about this stuff. And I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Cool, man. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Paul Jarvis. If you're interested in show notes for this episode, head over to fullsackradio.com slash 102. Thanks to Rollbar and Oh Dear for sponsoring the podcast this week. And I'll see you next time.